This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 318 with Kristen Carbone. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 318. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Kristen Carbone is the founder of Brilliantly, a brand that provides the support women need on their journey toward feeling vital and strong in their mind and body after a mastectomy. Motivated by her own personal experience, she is committed to providing solutions that help women deal with the long-term physical and emotional needs post-surgery so that they can prosper in their life afterward. She's also a shameless mom to her eight-year-old daughter and her 10-year-old son. Listen in to hear Kristen share how losing her mom to metastatic breast cancer at age 23 led her to have a preventative mastectomy herself. How she talked to her friends and family and her kids about her decision what her surgical journey looked like, and the unexpected challenges it presented, how to be a better self-advocate, and how to seek support in advocacy, and the impacts of surgery and scars on body image. Kristen was really kind and generous with her time. She reached out to me and wanted to share this story, and I immediately knew that it would be a really, really good fit, because I think that this is one of many decisions that women are often faced with that are complicated and unclear and take a lot of consideration 
And hearing each other's stories, I think, can really help other women when they are faced with these challenging moments. So if this story touches you or has the potential to touch someone else in your life who maybe is facing this kind of decision, please do share out this episode. I think it's really, really important. I think that this is something that we're going to be hearing more and more about. I think women, because of medical technology, are going to have more and more opportunities to be advocates around their healthcare and their health journey, especially when it comes to preventative measures to be taken against cancer and specifically against breast cancer. So I'm really, really grateful for Kristen to coming on the show and sharing her story. So with all that said, let's dive in with Kristen Carbone. Kristen Carbone, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. This will be a really good conversation. I know that this conversation is going to help some other mamas and potentially save some lives. So I can't tell you how grateful I am for you to come on the show and share your story and your experience with us. Yeah, of course. So let's go ahead and dive in and tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now. Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in my life right now. I'm moving in to a new apartment. I'd been renting a space in the same house for about seven years. So I feel like we're entering this brand new chapter in a way. And it was a bit of a forced transition. The house we were living in was under construction and we unearthed some sort of really toxic mold issue. Oh no. (laughs) So in the process of moving, we have downsized to really only having left what we had in the kitchen (laughs) because that stuff is completely washable. So, you know, it's kind of forcing us into this next chapter, but it feels like a good time to do it. And the kids are excited and I'm excited. And we have kind of committed as a family to not dwelling on the things that we don't have anymore and just are kind of moving forward. So it's a good attitude check. It's a good thing you know, it's the start of a new year. So we're just fully embracing the moving ahead. So that feels really exciting. I also enjoy picking out furniture and decorating. So, you know, that is a little bit of, I'm excited about getting to do that too. Right. Well, you have to like embrace the positive components of this. Yeah, totally. It was like, oh, right. You know, I went to go pick up toilet paper and paper towels and a broom. And I was like, oh, we don't even have hangers. And then, you know, it just kind of like, was snowballing into, right, like remembering all of the stuff that you have when you have a whole household that you sort of need if you live in contemporary America. I like the idea of embracing it as like a new fun adventure opportunity kind of thing versus, because it would be easy to be like, I cannot believe we have to do this and to feel overwhelmed, exhausted, put out and all of that. So I totally appreciate I'm, I'm a little bit all of that too. <laughs> but you know, I think I feel actually really lucky that my kids who are now eight and 10 seem to be at the right age for this where they're not little, where they're not really tied to a specific routine in a specific place. Yeah. And that they're not old enough to be super tied to their things as, yeah. as special. That's a so, good perspective, like recognizing that if it has to happen, that the timing is pretty good. So Yeah. And I was the one who was acting like a total baby about getting rid of their stuff. I was like, oh, this is the thing that they played with when, you know. Like, totally, oh. totally. Oh my gosh. So I want you to tell us, you wanted to talk about your family's health history 
and the profound impact it's had on your life and the, the impact that this has on so many women. And so let's go ahead and just dive in. And I think that this is so important. I want people listening to think about how this might parallel your family's history. Some of the things maybe you know about your family history, some of the things you might not know about your family history. So this might actually prompt people to start asking some really important questions to other generations in their family. And I want you to just go ahead, dive in, tell us your story, and then we'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, sounds great. So my mom died from metastatic breast cancer in 2005, and she was in her 40s. And when she first got diagnosed, she was 42. She had had an aunt who died from breast cancer in her 30s. And when she first was diagnosed, they caught it really early. She didn't even have chemo. She had radiation and a lumpectomy and kind of was well for a few years. It came back really aggressively, was traveling throughout her whole system. It was in her brains, her bones, her liver, her lungs. And they weren't sure how it was moving through her system because it wasn't in her lymphatic system. So she had kind of an unusual case. And this was back, you know, in the early 2000s. And they've made a lot of leaps and bounds in treatment and research since then. But at the time, she was a case study at Johns Hopkins. And I was 23 when she died. Mm -hmm. And during that time, there was nothing that protected you as an individual if you had a hereditary cancer risk that was confirmed by having genetic testing. Insurance companies could discriminate against you and treat you as if you had a pre-existing condition. So she had opted not to have any genetic testing. And when she opted for that, I was like, okay, I should probably wait you know, I'll be diligent, but I'm really young. And to be totally honest, did absolutely nothing until after I had my first son, when a friend said, you know, you should be taking better care of yourself and getting screened. And so I started to see a preventative oncologist at NYU. And then I started following this path of just regular screening. And I did that for years where I was having MRIs and ultrasounds and mammograms and felt a little bit like a lab rat. You know, you go and you wait and you have a test and you wait for results and you go back to hear the results. And shortly after I turned 30, they found a lump in my left breast that was benign, but going through the process of having the biopsy and really the enormous amount of emotional turmoil that that caused me prompted me to say like, okay, the women in my family, even when it's caught early, still don't survive. And I'm done playing this, like, let's catch it early game. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, when they found the lump, I decided that I was going to start the process of figuring out how to have a preventative mastectomy. And again, it was, you know, insurance, as everybody knows, there's complicated insurance issues. And it took me about a year of dealing with my health insurance company before I had my mastectomy, which was in April of 2013. And the interesting thing is that when I had my genetic testing, I don't have a BRCA gene mutation. So that was what I was going to ask. Yeah. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So not carrying the gene, did that make you more hesitant to approach the surgery or because of your family history, were you still like wanting to go full force ahead? Yeah, you know, so I had the genetic testing after the first appointment, after my son was born, when I went to this oncologist and when I got the results back, she said to me, well, this is an uninformed negative, which makes oh. a lot of sense. You know, it gives you some information, but okay. not all information. So, you know, you don't have those two genetic mutations, but, and there's so many more they know about now. I actually need to go back and have a new panel. But in 2009, when I went, those were the two that they knew about. And this particular physician had co-authored a paper about early onset breast cancer. So that's women who get breast cancer premenopausally. And they had done this study and published the paper in 2005 on all of the common traits they found in these young women that were seemingly unrelated to cancer. So it was birth weight over 10 pounds and early first period, things that were sort of seemingly not related to breast cancer, but were common in this test group. And I read her paper before I went to see her and I said, this this is actually me. I have a lot of these things. So I was being treated as if I had an unknown hereditary risk. It was more difficult to make the choice because if you know you have the BRCA gene mutation, there's a lot more data and research that you can say, okay, well, I'm the chance or the likelihood of me developing breast cancer is this percentage. And you can really quickly do the mental math on those odds and say like, okay, I don't want to play that game. It's a little bit more difficult when you don't really have odds to work with. But for me, and it's so different for every woman, I mean, we all have very different relationships to our bodies and our breasts, what, how we define ourselves based on them or not. And for me, it was a really easy choice. Part of it was because I'd had my kids and I'd gotten to nurse them and I had experiences that sometimes women who are younger or who haven't had that experience yet, you kind of have to mourn the loss of that body part in a different way. Yeah. So you had had this testing and you were getting this regular screenings. As soon as that lump showed up, was the decision made pretty quickly for you after that, that you were going to have the surgery Or was there like back and forth about it or walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I like immediately knew, Mm. you know, it was an appointment where I had an MRI and an ultrasound as the tests that they were doing the screening. And I knew immediately that the tech had found something, you know, like if you've had a test a bunch of times you know, just like little mannerisms or body language or something where you could like something's different. Right. And she was like going over the same spot over and over again. And, you know, 
I am no ultrasound tech or radiologist, but you can look up on that yeah. screen yeah. and you're like, oh, that's a baby's heartbeat or that's a that yeah. or, oh, that's my whatever. And I was like, there is something there. Mm-hmm. And so before she even left to bring in someone to talk to me, I was like, I'm done. And, you know, I think to the credit of my surgeons, because I don't think all surgeons are this compassionate, most surgeons want to cut you open and and do what they need to do. And if you go see a surgeon, they suggest surgery because that's what they know. And my doctors and my surgeon, you know, all the medical professionals I talked to really tried to play devil's advocate in a helpful way. Like, are you, do you really want to do this? Are you ready to do this? And for me, I was just like, at the time, I was a little outraged. I think in hindsight, it feels really responsible that they were asking me those questions. But I was sort of indignant. I think that's how I would be too. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't care. I don't care if I look good in a bathing suit. I don't want my kids to watch me die. You know, like at the end of my mom's life, she had all these tubes and drains coming out of her and she had aged like, you know, she was 49 and she looked like she was 90. It was just Mm. so damaging for me to see, you know, it was a privilege to get to take care of her, but it was really, really difficult to watch. And as you know, I approach 40, and I have lots of friends who are in their late 40s and early 50s, you know, putting that in context now about how full of life and healthy those people are and thinking about what she was going through. I was like, of course, this was the right choice, right? I don't want my children to see that happen to me. Like, there is no amount of feeling weird in a bathing suit or in a formal dress that outweighs being <laughs> right, alive. Right, right. Last winter, so a little over a year ago, I went in to have a spot checked on my nose. So I'm a redhead with freckles and fair skin. So I go to the dermatologist regularly. So I go in and have this spot on my nose checked. And I'm like, I feel like it's getting darker and it's kind of spreading. And she looks at it. She's like, well, it's not consistent with your other markings. But she's like, I don't think it's really anything. But we can scrape it if you want and biopsy it. And so I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And she's like, well, now you might have like a little mark there though over the holidays. So like, if you're going to want to have like family pictures and stuff like, you know, on Christmas morning. And I was like, I will not be able to sleep if I think cancer is growing on my face. So I don't care if I have a scratch on my nose on Christmas morning. Like her response about pictures was so weird to me. And kind of the same thing where now I'm like, I mean, it probably could have waited two weeks. It was not that. But for me, like the peace of mind, I'm like, I don't care if I have a bandaid on my nose for three days and then a scratch for like a week after that. (laughs) So Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're trying to be thoughtful because... The flip side of that is if they don't ask those questions and you right. don't know what to expect, sometimes it's really shocking and you are mad. Like, well, yeah, you didn't tell yeah. me that this was a possibility. Right. So, right. Everyone's just doing their job. Um, right. So, what was your family's perspective on the surgery? And, like, did you just come home? I mean, it sounds like the decision was done before you even left the doctor's office that day. Tell us about the rest of your family's response and how that all went. Yeah, that's also a really excellent question. You know, I have this amazing big family. My dad is the oldest of 10. So I have lots of cousins and aunts and uncles and people. And my mom had a brother and sister who also had children. And I felt like this responsibility to fill people on what was happening. There had been a lot of tragedy within our family in the few years leading up to my mom's death. My grandmother died. One of my aunts had had a stillborn baby. There was just like a lot of things. And I in a way felt like it was a burden to tell them that I was going to do this thing. But then maybe they would be relieved because I know that they were all worried about me in a way. But this was like almost another thing to worry about. Yeah. 
my dad had gone with me to my first appointment at NYU when my son was a baby. And, you know, he knew that it was a thing I was thinking about. But I also think it's difficult for him to one, he doesn't like talking about my body. That is, (laughs) he's not, he's not the kind of dad who's like, like everybody needs some privacy. He's a little conservative. <laughs> so um, I don't need to talk about my daughter's breasts. That's just, yeah, I, right. <laughs> that's exactly. where I draw the line. So, yeah, I think he was like a little bit uncomfortable about the whole thing and didn't really understand his place or how to ask questions in a way. And though I know he was supportive because, you know, we were in the trenches together taking care of my mom. Mm-hmm. I think it was hard for him to see. He was getting remarried the same year I was having my surgery. Mm -hmm. And so he was very focused on that. And I think that was good for him to have a distraction. You know, actually, this is like a little aside. Uh, My daughter recently had an endoscopy, which is not a very big deal. And we were at the hospital and I walk her into the OR and I wait till they put her under and I kiss her on the head and I walk out of the OR and into the waiting room and I burst into tears. Mm -hmm. It was like an immediate like PTSD reaction. And I thought, Oh my God, I haven't been in a waiting room. Like I was the person who had the kids and I was the person having surgery. I haven't been in a waiting room waiting for someone since my mom. And of course that would have been so hard for my dad having gone through that with her to then sit there and wait for me. Like I almost feel guilty that I asked him to be there because I didn't really know how hard that was to ask him to do. There were lots of people who questioned me about it. This was pre-Angelina Jolie, so it was not in the popular consciousness. It was not something that like everybody knew was even an option. And I had really good conversations with really smart friends who would challenge me on it. And I was like, and some of them men. And I was like, well, you don't have a body part. Kind of the same you don't, you just don't. Like if somebody told you to cut off your pinky so you could live, you'd probably do it or your earlobe. Like, I don't know what body part to correlate to breast then, but it was not a thing that I think was easily understood for some of the people in my life. But thankfully, a lot of them either shut up about it or just said, okay, that's your choice. And how can I help you? So, you know, my brother asked me a lot of questions. He came and helped and you know, would carry the groceries and drive me and the kids around. And I felt loved and supported. And like, there were lots of people who were bringing, you know, compassion and good vibes and humor situations. So how did you talk to your kids about it? That's a great question. And yesterday, I was with a woman who's about to have a preventative mastectomy who has little children. And she was very anxious. And she told me that she talked to her kids preschool teacher. She has a little one and then a three-year-old. And the teacher said to her, less is more. And I said, I agree with the teacher. You know, my kids were two and four. And part of my thinking around having the surgery then, even though it was hard because they needed a lot at that time, mm-hmm. was then they wouldn't remember it. Okay. And that makes sense. I didn't tell them really anything at all until a couple days before I was going to leave. And my ex-husband's mother was coming to stay in the house with them for almost two weeks. And I said, grandma's going to come and it's going to be really fun. And I'm going to go to the doctor and she's going to be here for a few days and take care of you. And then I'll come back, you know, and that was kind of that. And I stayed with my mom's sister outside New York City in New Jersey. And she took care of me for the few days after surgery when I had surgical drains because I didn't want to go home with surgical drains and toddlers. I thought that could be harmful 
for me because, you know, I was their human jungle gym. <laughs> right. And, I, and you don't want to say, no, you can't hug me. Like, that's hard. Right. So when I came home, I said, you know, I have boo-boos from going to the doctor and you have to be kind of gentle with me. And I would just remind them, like I would sit on the couch and let them climb onto my lap. I couldn't pick them up. But I would say it's really not until the last couple of years that they've asked more questions about it. And the awesome thing that I feel like happened to them during this time is because we had so many wonderful people kind of coming and going and living with us during that three to four months after surgery, they just remember it as fun. Mm. You know, it was really cool moment. And, you know, you were just saying to me before we started the talk about your son being so curious when he was about five. So my son was turning five during that time. And there were so many adults around who had different backgrounds and different perspectives to answer all of those questions that are like, why? Why? Well, why this? And why that? <laughs> totally. And it was it was a little bit of a relief because I felt a little fuzzy, but also just great for them to have so many people who love them and care about them, you know, stepping in as parents in a way. And they had to try new food and do new things and go do new activities and be comfortable, you know, moving from person to person. And I think it really changed how they developed in a way. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. So your daughter is now eight. Is that right? Yes. What does she know about it now? And like, I would imagine you have started thinking about how she's going to approach the same thing you went through, not necessarily having the same surgery, but making decisions around that and going through screenings and testings and just being aware of her family history. Have you started talking about that with her? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think when my son was maybe about five five and a half, he kind of realized that my dad's wife, Marsha, was not my mom. Mm. And then I got a lot of like, well, where's your mom? And so I said, well, my mom died. And so it must have been a solid 18 months where they were just fascinated with death. You know, they don't like, where do you go? What happens? You know, all of these questions yeah. about that. <laughs> and my daughter, who is possibly one of the most kind, sensitive people on the planet, really immediately was like, oh, your mom is dead and was so sad for me. And she would, like, I would pick her up and she would whisper in my ear, like, you're not going to die today. Like she would say these really like creepy, you know, like I would laugh about it because I was like, you're right, I'm I'm not going to die today. But, you know, she thought about it so much. And so I'm very careful about how I talk about this stuff in front of her because, you know, now that I talk to more women about it or I'm on the phone with someone or I'm talking to another mom who's about to have it and she hears these bits of the conversation and she'll come and she'll cling on to me and I know it's because she's thinking that I'm going to die. And so I now that she is eight and she understands a little bit more and I can reassure her in a different way, there was a day where she was just sobbing and she said, I'm so sad I didn't get to meet Lisa. My mom's name was Lisa. And she said, And I don't want you to die from breast cancer. And I was like, honey, I'm doing everything I can to not die from breast cancer. But I think she hasn't ever put the puzzle piece together that that means she has a risk. Yeah. So we never talk about it in terms of her. And I only talk about it in terms of like that I took control over this situation. And, you know, I mentioned a little bit ago that I do need to have some more genetic testing because there are different gene mutations that they know about now. Some are tied to different kinds of cancers. There's 
you know, it'll help me understand about what potential risk she has or what other screening I should be having. And I'm really hopeful that with all the research that's happening on the preventative front, but also there are people who are rethinking the way that mastectomies and reconstruction are done to maintain breast function and to make women feel better and for it to be less of a barbaric process. Mm -hmm. So my sincere hope is that in, you know, 10 to 15 years when she's starting to really have to think about this for herself, that she'll have different, better options than I had five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the expected and unexpected challenges of the surgery? And especially I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit the confronting, you know, giving up a part of your body and like your emotions around all of that. Yeah. You know, there are things that you absolutely expect like, okay, I'm going to look weird because it's a process. You don't go in and come out and, you know, it's months and months of looking different. And even when you've had your last plastic surgery for reconstruction, there's still months before things kind of settle and swelling goes away and there's scar tissue. There's all kinds of, it's a journey and what happens to your body. And I think I thought it would be sort of like, okay, well this happens and then this happens and then I'm done. And it really is kind of an ongoing, much more so than I had considered around body image and figuring out what you feel comfortable in and how to move your body safely. And in the short term, the thing that I knew was going to happen, but I wasn't super prepared for it was how little I was going to be able to do. I jokingly describe myself as a recovering type A. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a total control freak. I love having control over everything. And when there's a ton of people in your house, everybody does stuff their own way. Everybody packs the dishwasher differently and chops their vegetables differently. And, you know, you just have to be like, it's okay. That isn't what matters. What matters is that they're here and they showed up and that they're helping and everybody's needs are getting met. It doesn't actually matter if they line up the glasses in the cabinet in the order that I like them. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> and learning to be okay with that. And I think it was a challenge at that time for me to just kind of zen out about having no control. But it's really in the long term helped me be less of a monster. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's so funny. yeah. And I think, you know, the physical stuff and the emotional stuff is really much more ongoing than I thought it would be. You know, mm, I'm so. dating and it's a funny thing to say to someone. And when do you say it? And what is their reaction? And if they have a bad reaction, like, how shitty do you let that make you feel or, you know, and it really depends on the day, you know, we're fluctuating in our mental state all the time. So as different experiences occur, or even you know, like you have to be in the right mood to go jeans shopping, you have to be in the right mood to go bra shopping. And when it's an area that you're sensitive about, or that you feel like looks weird anyway, it just adds this extra layer. It's like, there's a new thread in my thinking about my body and how I look and what I should wear and what I shouldn't wear, and how people look at me or I'm perceived. It's just kind of a continuous low hum. Mm hmm. And there's sense. days where you can ignore it. And there's days where you're like, nope, I look awful in everything. And I hate this. <laughs> so you had reconstructive surgery. Is that correct? I did. I had implant reconstruction. And the first reconstruction I had, I tried to get the surgeon to make them look like they used to look, which is a crazy thing to ask for, because they're not going to implants don't look like real breasts. And I was really disappointed. I that feel they like were... that's what a lot of people would say, though, because you're like, I just don't want anything to change. So just make them the same as before. 
And right. You're like, I want to wear my clothes and right, I want right. to just look like me. And it just doesn't work. You know, I had pretty small breasts and after having and nursing two kids, they were like, you know, not the most glorious and full. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, putting in smaller round it looked like I had two oranges stuck to my chest. It just didn't look right. Yeah. And so it was a process to get to having fake breasts that look reasonable mm-hmm. on my frame. Yeah. And it was hard to say like, oh, I don't like how this looks. You know, it's really hard to advocate for yourself in those appointments and to also be satisfied because yeah. once you know that you can make these little micro changes, when do you stop? Yeah, that's such an interesting point. Just to back up a little bit, just so people have a little better view of kind of the course of everything. So when you have the mastectomy, you have the surgery where you have all your breast tissue cut off and you're left with scars kind of across the breast line or the nipple line. And then you are without anything for a while, right? Like that all has to heal. And then you can start preparing for the reconstructive surgery. Is that correct? That's a really... Excellent point. Then, of course, not everyone knows that. And it is actually different for different people. Okay. And even if you've done it preventatively, it's different for some people. And with the cancer diagnosis, it's also really different if you need radiation or you need chemo or when your body is ready for the different phases. They do now do some direct to implant where while you're in surgery, having the mastectomy, where they'll put the implants in right away. Okay. And I think that is a newer thing that they're doing. And it is in service of quickening the process. So women don't feel the way that you feel when you have these, I had tissue expanders put in. So yeah, that's the procedure that I'm familiar with. And I've known a few people who've gone through that where you are basically you have nothing for a while, and then they put expanders in and they have to like stretch out the skin or the muscle or tissues. Yeah, um, to create a pocket, right? Yes, which is really uncomfortable. And that takes time. And so they're like you mm-hmm. said, like there can be multiple months of this whole thing transitioning where you're like, what body am I in today? And how do I dress that body and show up like I'm just cool with everything and life is normal? <laughs> so many print scarves where you're like, oh, <laughs> wear these totally. and no one will know. But it is really uncomfortable that the stretching mm-hmm. to create a pocket for the implant is my least favorite physical feeling. And it's mm-hmm. so vivid in my mind. But there yeah. are people who get reconstruction from their own body tissue. Okay. There's lots of different ways to do reconstruction. And okay. depending on your body type and shape and what your surgeon is most comfortable doing and your overall health, those all impact the process for reconstruction. And even within mastectomies, there's a different way that they do it. They can cut underneath your breast. So once you're reconstructed, your scar is more hidden. But if you're having your nipples removed, sometimes they cut right across the breast line like you described. Some people can keep their nipples, some people can't. It's a really individual, which is why you need to find a doctor that you feel really good about and trust and who will answer all of your questions about what you're going to look like so you can kind of mentally prepare for that. Right, right. So I had breast reduction surgery a a year and a half ago. And I'm kind of like just intrigued by like breast surgeries. And then I've had multiple friends and family members go through breast cancer treatment and mastectomies and reconstruction. So I have maybe an odd level of knowledge about some of this. (laughs) But I was laughing when you talked about being a control freak because one of the things after my surgery was you say like you don't understand how limited you'll be in your range of motion. And I remember like not being able to open my refrigerator door. And oh, yeah, so totally. there's like these little things where you're like, I understand that I have like, you know, six inches of scarring on each side or whatever, or stitches on each side. But 
you don't comprehend that like, well, I can't even pick up my coffee cup for the first two, like so many little things. And as a control right. freak, you're like, how do I open that refrigerator door and get the creamer without asking anyone to come in here and help me? <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. It's really, I remember laying in bed the night I had surgery and I had had a friend text a bunch of my friends to say I was okay. And then people started texting me back and I like literally couldn't pick up my phone. (laughs) And I was like, oh man, I'm super lame. Like I can do nothing. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think especially as moms, there's so many things that we power through and we don't even give it a second thought. Like if I have a headache, it's like the world goes on. Like if I have a cold, like nothing gets paused, which is very different than I think how men handle the world. And so to be shut down by something is like shocking. Cause even when the doctor's like, you're going to need to really rest and like, you won't be able to pick up your kids. And you're like, well, I'm sure I can like find a workaround. And you're like, right. oh, wait, I actually cannot find I a cannot. workaround. I can't lift this glass of water to my right. face. Right. right. Yeah. So interesting. So heavier question for you. And I didn't ask you about this in the pre-interview. So if you're not open to talking about it, just let me know. But I'm guessing that some of our guests will be curious with your doctor's advice and feedback and you know what they think your risk factors might be. Have you considered the, I think Angelina Jolie did this, the secondary portion of having like the hysterectomy and all these other pieces that are tied to different kinds of breast cancer? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that. I think having a hysterectomy or your ovaries removed is, well, first, no one in my family has had ovarian or cervical cancer. And there are some genetic mutations that are linked to those cancers. So that's when that conversation comes up. As far as I know, with my family history, and you know, I'll know more when I have this other genetic testing, but I am not someone who's at increased risk okay. from the average risk for doing that. I do also know a lot of women who've gone through that and I'm familiar with the process and you know, I was so relieved, actually, that was the biggest thing when I found out I wasn't BRCA1 or 2, that I didn't have to think about my ovaries. For some mm. reason, that felt like a way bigger deal, mm. even though, you know, they're a thing on the inside that I've right. never seen before and <laughs> won't, you know, but it just felt like a different, it affects your hormones, you yeah. go through menopause early, there's a lot of different side effects that aren't a factor in breast surgery. And there are women who go through mastectomy, even preventatively, who are like, oh, I get acne now, or I'm gaining or losing weight. And there's, of course, like effects within your body when you do something like that. But the hormonal effects of removing your ovaries are much more significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in this process, you became a much better self-advocate for yourself. And can you talk a little bit about what that has looked like and just how you've been, and this might also tie into your type A personality, like your ability to learn how to ask for support in different ways and in new ways that you hadn't in the past. Yeah, it's being a self-advocate in a medical situation is really difficult. And when I talk to other women and if they are, at all nervous, even if we're only acquaintances, I'm like, if you need someone to go to the doctor with you, I will go, I will take notes. And if you've said something to me, like now that your doctor should know, and we get there and you feel a little cagey about saying it, I'll say it for you. Mm. Because it's hard. It's hard to go when it's about your health and you ask a question and sometimes you get distracted and caught up in like one part of the answer and don't hear the rest. And then you don't have the right follow up question. It's difficult. 
And I would encourage everyone to bring a friend or your partner with you to also ask questions and to write down the doctor's answers because you can't really advocate for yourself unless you're informed with the information. And it's so hard to take in all of the information. Most of us aren't doctors. So when you're in a conversation with one, sometimes they ask things that you later reflect back and you're like, oh, I actually, maybe I don't know what that means and I need to look that up or I need to ask again. And I think it's still hard for me. There are still some doctors who I'm really intimidated by to our great doctors who I love, who I'm happy are on my team, but I get nervous before I see them and I'm like, okay, you're going to ask this question. You're going to ask and it's going to be okay. And other doctors, it's like, you know, having a family member come in and it's easy to say, well, I feel like this or this is the thing I'm experiencing and what does that mean? But it is a practice. Self-advocating in any way is difficult. And I think women are conditioned culturally to not complain. Yes. Like you don't want to be a whiner, but when it's your health and you're in with your doctor, whine away. (laughs) Right. And we're also, I think we're not put in a position to be an expert of our own body. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's easy for us to feel smaller than a medical professional And in some cases, that's because they're literally treating us that way. And in other cases, it's just that like, we think like, this is the professional. So therefore I should like shrink based on their opinion or their level of expertise. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Right. Um, And sometimes that shuts us down from speaking up. And I noticed after having my son, like the things that I would speak up for him on his behalf in doctor's appointments versus the areas where I would speak up for myself. And I was like, oh, isn't this interesting that like I keep going back to like this, you know, this silly little thing about like how he has dry skin or whatever. Like if that was me, I would just be like, whatever, it's fine. Right. (laughs) So yeah, I think that being 
a parent and being an advocate for my child's health actually made me more aware of being an advocate for my own health because I was like, oh, I don't really nitpick anything about my own health. I'm much more quick to be dismissive. And to just deal with it. Yeah. Right, right. I think it's about feeling like you have permission to do it. And when you're the mom, you feel like you have permission. You're like, this is my kid. I'm responsible for this kid. But somehow in our own body, we're like, oh, whatever, I can deal with that. Right, right. Yeah. And an area that comes to mind is I've had an ongoing battles with insomnia since I was like a really little girl. And I've gone to so many doctors. And part of this is like my own desire to treat things like in small, least impactful ways. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try like you know, taking melatonin and all these more natural things. And I finally got to a point when my son was like three and I was not sleeping well at all for long periods of time. I was like, I need drugs. Like I need drugs now, hardcore drugs <laughs> that put you to sleep every single night. <laughs> but I had to like really step up and practice like using my like self-advocate voice, which I really hadn't done before. And I had, you know, for years been treated by a naturopath who was very open to all of this. Like she was great about the whole thing, but I had to go to her and be like, no, like, don't tell me more melatonin. You can refer me to someone else who will give me like narcotics, (laughs) you know? Right. Um, But then it was like a life changing when I finally got drugs and could finally sleep. (laughs) And I was like, why did I wait to do this for like 30 years? (laughs) So yeah. It's hard though. It's hard to say that you want and need those things and release your own judgment about them and not worry what the physician or person treating you is going to say. Right. Yeah, it really is. And I would imagine with something, I mean, you know, your situation is obviously much deeper, you know, than insomnia. So, and there's so many layers to, you know, changing your body in such a permanent way and all that comes with that. So, you know, I would imagine that it's harder in some ways to be a self-advocate, but also probably like you got to a point where you're like, I don't have any other choice. Yeah. And I think with anything else, We don't need to walk around. And this is a funny thing to say. I was going to say we don't need to walk around suffering silently, but we're walking around in heels and we're (laughs) waxing off body hair and we're plucking our eyebrows and we're we're doing all these things all the time where we're suffering and we're just like, yep, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be about any specific topic, but it's sort of the same common threads that we're all experiencing. It doesn't really matter what the health issue is or whether it's sleep or whether it's cancer. It's the same skill set to figure out how to advocate for yourself and how to get your needs met in a way that suits you and is appropriate and that you're getting it from the right sources. Right, right. One thing that came to mind that I really want to encourage women to do. So one of the things I talk about a lot on the show is around body positivity and the body positivity movement and really rethinking our ideas around body image and pushing women to push through their relationship with their own body image struggles, which I think most women have. And I have talked a lot about following body positive people on social media and letting that Mm -hmm. fill your stream more so than like fitness people. And I (laughs) I say this as someone who was in the fitness industry for 16 years and I don't follow fitness people. I follow body positive people. I follow more people that weigh 300 pounds than I do people that have six packs. And one of the other things in the last year or so that's really shifted in my social media feed is following a handful of women whose names are escaping me at this time. I can't think of any of them right off the top of my head, but there's a handful of women who are breast cancer survivors and have had mastectomies, either single or double. And they have pictures all over their Instagram feed of themselves or other people that they know. And their bodies look very different than someone who was walking around with her own natural, normal breasts. And that has become a very normal thing for me to see. And it's not shocking to me anymore. And I think that that's a powerful thing for any woman to experience the normalization of how different bodies can look 
and they can still be super powerful and super beautiful and confident and all these things. And so that if your body is rocked in some way, whether that's through the loss of your breasts or something else, that you don't feel like that's compromising and it doesn't have to be so compromising to your sense of self or your sense of self-worth. Yeah, totally. I think, and I don't know if this happened to you after you had your son, but like after I had a baby, I wanted to see women's bodies who had just had babies. I'm like, well, what do your breasts look like? And what does your skin look like? And it's so, you just, it's a way, and it's not a judgment thing. It's like, you want to know that you're not isolated in your experience of being able to like hold the skin on your stomach and stretch it across the room. You know, (laughs) like there's all these weird new things that happen. And I think it's so amazing that there are all of these women, because I follow lots of them too, who share images of their body and show their scars because it helps. It helps other women to see other women's bodies and say, oh, okay, I thought I was the only one who looked this way, but I'm not. And look, I think that woman looks beautiful. Yeah. And oftentimes we're much more forgiving when we see someone else's shape and form and size and scars. And, you know, I see other people's scars and I'm like, that's cool. That's badass. Totally. And, uh, and sometimes when I'm like, oh, I hate that, that in this bathing suit, some of my scars show, you know, there's, it's a good thing to see it and it's a good thing for it to be normalized and having women who are in the process or deciding what they're going to do or who've just been diagnosed with cancer, seeing women on the other end of it who are thriving and prosperous and feeling well and doing well and looking different, but being okay is hugely important and impactful. Yeah, definitely. Anything that we've missed or haven't touched on yet that you want other women to know about preventative mastectomies or things to consider if they know they have a family history, they think they might be a candidate for this. I think it's really, really important to find a doctor to talk to who can also point you towards a genetic counselor. People are finding out in so many different ways about, you know, there are women who know that they have a hereditary risk because their mother and their grandmother and their aunt died from cancer, but there are other women who really haven't thought about it or didn't know. And then one of their cousins does 23andMe and finds out they have a BRCA mutation or they have a sister who gets diagnosed with cancer all of a sudden, and then they don't know what to do. We are more or less prepared for those things at different times in our lives. And if you weren't the person who chose to go and have that test and find out, it's sometimes a thing that you hear and is shocking. So having a person who can unpack that with you and really tell you what is your actual risk and what are all of the different things your family has and what are the kinds of tests that you can have and what are the options available. I would never suggest that someone finds something out and is like, yep, chop off a body part. It's so different for every woman. And if you go to a genetic counselor or a doctor who makes you feel bad, who doesn't listen to your questions, find another one. You know, be picky about that's the first place to start advocating for yourself is to have a team of medical people who you really trust and believe in who feel like they're on your side. So before I I think, yeah, that would be my most important advice. And I will say for anyone here in Seattle, so the doctor that did my surgery actually primarily does breast cancer 
reconstruction. And so she has like one day a month that she'll do reductions or something like that. So, and I adored her. Like I wanted to become friends with her. I thought she was so amazing. So if you're in Seattle and you're in need or someone you know is in need, I have the name of a great surgeon who I would highly, highly recommend just to have a conversation with. So, so there's that piece. Next, I want you to tell us in what ways you are a shameless mom. Yeah. You know, I love this question. When I was pregnant, a friend gave me a book called The Three Martini Playdate. And I don't know if any, <laughs> if you've read it or any no. of your listeners have read it. It's really very funny. And it's a mom. And the thing that's sticking out in my mind right now is she talks about somebody going over to someone else's house for a playdate with like 14 bags of stuff. And she was like, you know what? You are allowed to bring like one diaper, one change of clothes and two toys, you know, like really trying to <laughs> keep it in check and even though a lot of that book was just humorous anecdotes, it sort of set this frame in my mind about like, right, I was here first. Yes. <laughs> and I need sometimes to give myself a minute first. And especially in early childhood, you spend so much time as a mom meeting their immediate needs over and over and over and over and over again all day long, every minute that they're awake. And you sort of forget that you have any. And I don't know if it's because my kids have gotten to an age where I can do this now, but I have always tried to be like, I need to do this thing for me and I'm going to do it. And even if I'm not ignoring them, they're playing or they're reading or they're doing whatever they're doing, but I'm not spending every minute of my day playing pretend or playing dress up or fully <laughs> engaging with them. And we do a lot of awesome stuff together, but in the moments where I'm just doing my thing and they're doing their thing, I don't feel bad about that. Right, right. Anything to minimize playing pretend. I'm terrible at playing I'm pretend. not into playing pretend at all. And I joke with my other mom friends, we're all like, oh my God, not pretend. Right. <laughs> so sure. Funny. I'll be the dog. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. So Kristen, tell people where they can find you or connect with you. I'm sure there's people who are on their own personal journeys and can relate to your story in different ways. Where can I send them to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So if on Instagram, I'm at Kristen underscore brilliantly, and I'm actually starting a company that is making a warming bra insert for women who've had implant reconstruction and experience this sort of like long-term coldness as a side effect. And we're designing some corrective exercise programs and a lot of really cool and interesting stuff that will unroll this year. The nice. Kristen underscore brilliantly on Instagram is my personal kind of behind the scenes trying to start a company and be a mom and move and throw your things away. It's a little bit unpolished as am I. And if anyone <laughs> wants to sign up. That's how moms like it. <laughs> right. So if anyone is interested in signing up for the company's mailing list, we're at brilliantly.co. And on Instagram, the company is also at brilliantly.co. And that way, it's a little more polished. And you'll hear mostly about products and services and things that hopefully you find useful. But if you just want a sneak peek into the hilarity of my life, you can follow me and reach out anytime. I'm more than happy to talk to women about whatever or hear your story. So hopefully we'll connect. I love it so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story. And like I said at the beginning, I think that this conversation will impact lives in a deep and profound way. And I think this conversation will probably save some lives as well. So I'm so grateful that you were here today. Thank you. It was really nice to speak with you.
Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.